Hey there, my name is Madison and I'm one of the pastors at Kainos Church in Portland, Oregon. This teaching you're about to listen to is from one of our Kainos collectives. These gatherings happen once a month, typically the first Sunday of the month, and serve as a time for us to worship together and learn from the scriptures. On the following Sundays of each month, we gather in smaller groups inside homes. We call these Kainos communities. Here we share a meal and discuss the Bible together. For more information about Kainos, feel free to visit kainospdx.org. The hope of Kainos Church is that we are people finding fresh and fulfilled life in Jesus. Merry Christmas, everybody. You can take a seat if you'd like. It is so good to be with you. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, this season is at times a whirlwind. Uh, My past week has been pretty jam-packed. I'm sure that most of you can probably relate. (laughs) I'm a middle school teacher, and uh, the last week before Christmas break is basically just keep the children alive, and that is the goal. So I'm glad to be here with you. I think it's really special this time of year to be able to take some time to slow down, to sing, to reflect on the past year and on Christmas, and to look ahead to the next And so, if you wouldn't mind joining me for a moment in prayer, just to calm our minds and open our hearts as we read about the story of Jesus this evening. God, we thank you for time together. We thank you for time to sing and to eat good soup, to uh, laugh, but also to cry, to rejoice together and to grieve together. God, we thank you that you did not intend for us to live this life alone, but you give us the presence of Uh, yourself. And God, you give us the presence of one another. And so as we gather in this room this evening, uh, we thank you for the chance to be together with friends and family and also with strangers, with people we have not gotten yet to know. We just give you thanks for uh, the way that you reveal yourself to us through the people all around us, God, and the way that you did that uh, through the Christmas story. So we love you. We praise you. We pray that you would uh, teach us as we get into your word this, uh, this evening. Amen. I'm also used to saying morning. Uh, since I was a kid, one of my uh, favorite holiday traditions is going to look at Christmas lights. I don't know if any of you are the same way. Uh, I think there's just something spectacular about Christmas lights, the way the light catches your eye in the dark winter sky. It's mysterious, and it's mesmerizing in a way. And what's amazing to me is that unlike most things that create wonder in us as children, looking at Christmas lights does not get less amazing as we age. In fact... I think we may even appreciate Christmas lights more as we get older because we realize how much time it takes to put them up. And as someone who loves Christmas lights, I felt like, actually Madison told me I need to be honest, that I've actually never decorated our home in five years with any Christmas lights. So I just love driving through other neighborhoods and seeing the hard work that other people have done without having to do it myself. Um, And I think that part of the reason why uh, we love Christmas lights is because it gets dark at like 2 p.m. these days. Uh, This Wednesday, actually, is winter solstice, uh, which means that this week is literally, yeah, someone said that was their favorite holiday the other day. It's this Wednesday, uh, which means it's literally as dark as it gets all year, right now, this week. And I think that's what makes Christmas lights so special. The darkest moments are often when we find ourselves most in need of light. And it's that very theme of light and darkness that we've been talking about for the past few months together as a church. But before we dive into that, I wanted to just recap briefly where we've been together for the past year or so. Uh, In October of this year, Kainos celebrated our first birthday as a church, which was really exciting. We had cake, and we sang, and got to celebrate and think back on some memories together. And in October as well, we also finished 
a year of going through the Old Testament together, and we began discussing and engaging with the New Testament by getting into the book of John. John is one of the four Gospels, which are kind of like the biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. They are called the Gospels because gospel was the ancient Greek word that meant good news. And that's what these authors set out to do, share good news of great joy for all people. But have you ever wondered, why are there four of them? Why do we need so many perspectives of the same thing? I was thinking about that this week and thought about it from a different example. Uh, I love soccer. And today was the World Cup final, bringing the last month of the World Cup together. It's been incredible. And I was thinking about how if I asked four people in this room to tell me about the World Cup, I would get four very different perspectives. If I asked David about the World Cup, he would tell me about France and his favorite player, Kylian Mbappe, who won the Golden Boot. Okay, It was an amazing match today. Runners up. Amazing tournament. If I asked Alyssa about the World Cup, she could probably give me detailed breakdowns of every match, including like Ecuador versus the Netherlands in the group stage. She could give you detailed analysis. If I asked Madison about the World Cup, she would probably focus on the United States because like many Americans, she only watches soccer every four years when this tournament comes around. And she might mention the breakfast burrito she had this morning while we were watching the final. She likes sports for the food. And if I asked my friend Rob about the World Cup, he would tell you that soccer is stupid. (laughs) And he would probably tell you about how the Seahawks won the Russell Wilson trade, which has nothing to do with soccer whatsoever. Four different people, four different perspectives, four different focuses, which gives us, as an audience, a more full, meaningful, and diverse picture of these events that took place. And that is what the gospel author set out to do. There were four different people with four different backgrounds giving us four different perspectives. And in addition to that, they give us four different focuses, which gives us, as an audience, this more, I think, meaningful and diverse picture of what Jesus' life was really like. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use a narrative style to tell us about the life of Jesus. They focus on many of Jesus' famous teachings and miracles while viewing them from their own perspectives and writing to different audiences. And then there's the fourth Gospel, written by a man named John. And John is... uh, The most unique of all the Gospels. Uh, To try and explain how John's style is a bit different, I thought I would share a parallel from uh, my own line of work, being a middle school teacher. Uh, I teach an elective class called Intro to Film, and recently I showed my students two movies directed by John Lasseter. We're talking about movie directors, and so I showed them two movies, Toy Story and Cars. Two classics, both directed by John Lasseter. And each of the students, after watching the films, they had to write a film review. That's part of the class. So for Cars, most of my students wrote reviews that consisted of thoughts like, Cars was fun. Cars was cool. Lightning McQueen is red. He is funny. They're middle school boys. You're just going to have to take it for what it's worth sometimes, okay? But I have another student uh, for this intended purpose. We're going to call her uh, Lydia. Lydia does not see things the way that many of her classmates do. And let me tell you, Lydia did not think that Cars was funny. Or cool. Here is an excerpt from what Lydia wrote about Cars. She's in seventh grade, by the way. Cars is a movie I would call interesting at best, with some features in this movie I can only describe as abysmal. (laughs) The film, I'm not exaggerating this at all. The film's blatant sexism and disregard of any meaningful female characters is a great example. This movie gave us our protagonist, who is honestly very dislikable for his shallow attitude toward the world, and showed us that he can act however he wants and get away with it. And over the course of a few days, everyone acts like nothing ever happened. 
I understand that this is supposed to make his changing more dramatic or memorable, but the bothersome part of this, the bothersome part of this is that he never truly atoned for or apologized for his behavior. I mean, come on, preach it, preach it, okay? (laughs) Okay, but I hope you can see here how Lydia's passionate writing jumps off the page. She was not doing this because she had to. She did this because she needed to distill her thoughts on cars. She was not shying away from giving her personal thoughts, but also giving objective analysis from the story. And much like Lydia, the Gospel of John does the exact same thing. John veers away from the more narrative uh, kind of writing style of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and focuses mostly on his own personal experiences as a friend and a follower of Jesus. And oh boy, does John write with passion. He pours out his heart onto the paper. He omits many of the common stories that are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and instead writes about conversations that only he and Jesus had together or about personal moments that maybe just a few friends had been around to hear. And he also wrote quite poetically. If you like poetry, read John. It is a beautiful story. He wrote about these themes that anyone at any time in history or any place around the world can connect with and resonate with. And one of those most prominent poetic themes of his gospel is the theme of light and darkness. You see, John knew very intimately how dark the world could be. John grew up in oppression. He was living as a Jewish man during the height of the Roman Empire. And as a young man, it seems that the only job he could find to make a living was fishing, something that would have kept him likely living in a cycle of poverty that had been generational. Later on, after becoming a friend and disciple of Jesus, he saw how people mistreated him and others because of what they believed. And in one of the most tragic moments of the New Testament, John's brother, a man named James, is executed by King Herod and the Roman Empire for telling others about Jesus. Y'all, I think it is vital that at moments like this, as we're reading through a story that happened a long time ago, I think it's vital that we pause and remember, this is not a fairy tale. These are not characters, like just from a story somebody made up. These were real people who experienced real oppression and hardship and darkness. Think about it this way. Have you ever lost someone close to you in a heartbreaking way? Have you or someone you loved ever experienced oppression because of your ethnicity or your gender, your sexuality or your religious beliefs? If so, John understands how you feel. He lost his brother to an execution at the hand of their oppressors. I cannot imagine many things that would be more dark. And yet, John firmly believed that there was a light which would overcome all darkness in the world. So, if you would, turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 1. If you've got the Bible app on your phone, we'll also have the text up here on the screen so you can can read along that way as well. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John believed with his whole heart that Jesus of Nazareth an ethnic minority and low-class manual laborer from a rough neighborhood, a man who in the eyes of the world was ordinary and easy to look past, was the light of the world. But why? Why did John believe this? And why should you and I and all of us consider believing the same? That's what I would love to spend the next few minutes chewing on together. In the Gospel of John, chapters 7 and 8, John writes about Jesus having some pretty intense 
uh, conversations and interactions with others in his community. He talks with and gets into some heated moments with the powerful religious leaders of his day, known as the Pharisees. And he also speaks to a woman who had been forced to live in shame, a woman accused of a crime that could even result in the death penalty according to the culture and the time in which they lived. And Jesus advocates on her behalf. And to tie together all of these events, all that's been happening in what I imagine was a pretty chaotic and dark period of his life, Jesus looks at his friends and followers and says these words. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus begins his powerful statement with two very specific words. I am These two words are a focal point of the story of the Old Testament. This past summer at Kainos, we got to talk about the story found in Exodus chapter 34, where God speaks with a man named Moses. In this story, God shares his character. He tells us that he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, but also just. And then he shares his name with Moses. He tells Moses in the Hebrew language that Moses spoke, that his name is Yahweh, or in English, I am. If you're anything like me, you might hear that. I think that the name I am is a pretty strange or maybe (laughs) stupid name to name yourself if you're naming yourself, but it's actually so powerful. Essentially, God is saying, I am who I am. And in a world where people constantly change and betray one another, And fail to be consistent to who they claim to be. God says, I am who I am. I will not betray you. I will not go behind your back. I will continue to be compassionate. Because I am compassionate. I will continue to be gracious. Because I am gracious. I will continue to be slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness and justice. Because I am those things. I am who I am. And I believe that John is doing something very intentional when he writes down in his gospel that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He is connecting the story of Jesus to the story of Yahweh in the Old Testament. He's implying that Jesus is not just a brilliant scholar or a miracle worker, but he is Yahweh. He is God in flesh and bones. And if you think that maybe I'm exaggerating or like, Okay, it's just the words I am. People say that all the time. I got some English teachers here. They're like, it's a pretty common phrase. Okay, there are actually seven times in John's gospel where he records Jesus saying these words, I am dot, dot, dot. And at each of our Kainos Collective gatherings for the past few months, we have read together and discussed one of those seven I am statements from Jesus. In November, my friend Justin taught about Jesus's words, I am the bread of life. And earlier this month, my friend Becca taught about Jesus' words, I am the good shepherd. Now, ironically, bread and shepherds, much like Jesus, on the surface were not extraordinary. They were, in many ways, quite ordinary. And this passage is similar. Light is a vital part of our day-to-day life. But when was the last time you or I just stopped to think about how profound light is? Just something we take for granted. Bread, light, water. But it seems to me that Jesus is intentionally using common, ordinary, and well-known pieces of daily life to tell us about himself and about his kingdom so that all people across all time and all places could access his words and put them into practice. But what does Jesus mean by the rest 
of his statement. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When I think about walking in darkness, a very core memory comes to mind from my childhood. Uh, I grew up in Kentucky. Um, My friend Mason and I went to elementary school together. And in Kentucky, you go on a lot of field trips to Kate's. It's just something you do in Kentucky. We don't have a lot to do, y'all, okay? It's the Kentucky Derby <laughs> in caves, okay? So we went on a lot of field trips to caves. Uh, Kentucky's home to Mammoth Cave, which is actually the largest known cave system in the world. So I'm going to flex that for a second, okay? And when we were in third grade, we went on a field trip to one of these caves so that we could study stalactites and stalagmites. And there was a point in the tour through the cave where the tour guide said that he was going to turn the lights off. And I can distinctly remember thinking how funny it would be to try to scare my friends when you turn the lights off. So I was kind of like moving through the crowd, moved away from my mom and dad to try to scare my friends, and he hit the lights quicker than I thought, and it was total darkness, and I absolutely lost my mind. (laughs) I freaked out. I can remember thinking that they held the lights off for ages, and I was panicking, wondering if they would ever come back on. Because that is the thing about darkness. Whether you are seven, or 17, or 70, Darkness elicits intense emotions. I was thinking this week about how darkness can feel as humans, and a few thoughts came to mind. Number one, darkness can feel crippling. Dark seasons of life make us feel disoriented and lost. We no longer feel like ourselves, and the things we turn to for comfort or pleasure or stability just don't seem to have the same effect that they used to. Number two, darkness can feel like it will last forever. In a dark season of life, we begin to wonder if life will always be this painful, if our grief will always be this hard, if our pain will always feel this bad. Number three, I think that darkness makes us feel alone. When I was in that cave in third grade, I was surrounded by at least 20 classmates and a dozen parents and chaperones, including my own mom and dad, but I felt so alone because that is what darkness does. It obscures from us the people who are there, and it makes us feel like we will have to escape from that darkness all on our own. Which brings me back to Jesus' words in John 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think that what I'm realizing is that Jesus is not promising that life will not be dark. In fact, I think he's kind of saying quite the opposite. I think he's acknowledging that life is going to feel dark at times. I mean, think about his own life experiences, right? Jesus knows what it's like to experience financial difficulties. (laughs) If any of you have ever experienced living paycheck to paycheck or living without a consistent home, it is an immense challenge that can feel dark. Jesus understands. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus had no consistent place to lay his head, and he even had to rely on others, these, these women who were friends of his, to help provide financially for him to do what he was doing. Jesus knows what it's like to experience exhaustion. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Jesus was often found by his disciples just trying to take a nap because his responsibilities and his work was so overwhelming. At one point, Jesus actually is on a boat with his friends. The boat is like sinking and this dude is just passed out. I mean, that is like really tired. I am a dad of a one-year-old. I am so exhausted sometimes. I have to drink three cups of coffee at school so I don't fall asleep. I don't think I've ever been so tired that I would fall asleep in a sinking boat and not realize it. Jesus knows what it's like to experience grief and the loss of someone we love. 
He experienced the death of his cousin, John the baptizer, who uh, was a close and dear friend. I would imagine left him heartbroken. And a short time later, he loses his friend Lazarus, which seems to be one of his best friends, because upon hearing the news and seeing where he was buried, Jesus breaks down and weeps bitterly. And lastly, Jesus knows what it feels like to feel distant from and even abandoned by God. On the cross, Jesus cried out some of the most fascinating words in the whole Bible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it feels like to feel distant from and even abandoned by God. So I want to ask you, have you experienced any of these forms of darkness over the past year? Have you experienced financial struggles? Have you experienced exhaustion? Have you experienced the loss of someone that you love? Have you experienced feeling distant from or even abandoned by God? Because if the answer to any of these questions is yes, I want to remind you that you are not alone. This room is full of people who are experiencing those same things. And even more than that, we believe that we have a savior, a Messiah, a God who understands what it's like to walk through darkness because he walked through it too. The struggles that we go through, the darkness that we go through is not unknown to God. He gets it because he went through it himself. So when Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We know that what he is saying is much deeper than just, hey, life is easy. Don't sweat it. Do some yoga. Everything will be fine. (laughs) No, what Jesus is saying is this. Life will feel dark at times. But when you follow me, you will always, always have a light to guide you. God is promising us that he will never leave us alone. He will always provide us with the hope to guide us, even through life's most challenging and dark moments. And this has been the case from the very beginning of Jesus' story. The reason we're here today, of all days, is because we're celebrating Christmas. (laughs) We're remembering how God came to earth and experienced humanity, all of it, beginning with every person's first life experience, being born, (laughs) birth. And if we look closely, we can see how God was bringing light to everyone involved in this story from Jesus' first moments on earth. Luke chapter 2 tells us how God brought light to one of the poorest, most marginalized, and forgotten people groups of Jesus' day. Shepherds. As Becca taught us about two weeks ago, Luke tells us, in Luke chapter 2, that there were shepherds living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, these shepherds weren't just working a low-class job. They were working the night shift of a low-paying job, where at any moment, they and their sheep could be attacked by wolves. This was a difficult dangerous and literally dark job that would have been likely a last resort for almost all of them. And then verse nine says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. (laughs) That song we just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, beautiful song, but the way angels are described in the Bible, it's kind of freaky, they're terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. That word good news is our word gospel. I bring you gospel that will cause great joy for all people. For today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the savior, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you have found the right child. 
And I imagine at this moment, the shepherds overwhelmed are thinking to themselves, how are we as physically dirty and low class shepherds going to be invited into a palace where a king has just been born? But the angel wasn't finished. The angel says this in Luke chapter two, verse 12. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The shepherds could relate to that. In fact, the word cloth that it says Jesus is wrapped in is the same Greek word that was used for the cloth that shepherds would wrap around a baby lamb when it was born. Which is absolutely wild. And the craziest way, these shepherds are actually the perfect people to celebrate with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Verse 13 continues. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened, which God has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, They spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We see here how God provided a literal light, the light of the angels, and the darkness of the night sky for these shepherds. But more than that, he provided them with the light of hope, the light of peace, and the light of joy. For their Messiah, their Savior, had finally arrived to rescue them. And I love how the story concludes. God did not just show up as a light to the shepherds for their own good. God then used these shepherds to share that light with others. They encouraged Mary, who I can imagine felt so alone after going through the grueling experience of labor without a doctor or a midwife or any family and friends beyond Joseph or Beyonce. So much so that Luke says... Mary treasured the words the shepherd said to her and thought about them for the rest of her life. Has anyone ever said something to you that you have taken a heart and from time to time when you are feeling down and alone, you just think about those words. Shepherds, they were not glorious, rich, famous people. They were the lowest of the low in their society. And those words that they shared with Mary encouraged her for the rest of her life. You see, these shepherds received the light, and then they were the light. And that is what Jesus meant when, during the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous teaching, he said these words. You, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put a lamp on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see these good deeds, this light, and they may glorify your God in heaven. You see, these shepherds did not shy away from sharing the light they had experienced with others. They didn't hide it. They didn't put it on display. They shared this good news with everyone in their community and not just for their own good, but so that others could experience the hope, peace, joy, and light that they had too. And that... I think it's my favorite thing about following Jesus. He tells us that he is the light, the light of the world. That because of him, we are never going to walk through darkness alone. But then he goes a step further. He turns it on us and he says, you, you are the light 
of the world. You get to share hope and peace and joy with others. You get to point others to the light that has brightened your life. And as I thought about that point over the last couple of weeks, I could not help but think of my friend David and his story over the past year. I think that David's life is a living embodiment of what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. And I also think it's what he meant when he said that you are the light of the world. So would you welcome with me my friend David? He's going to come up here and share a little bit about his story. Hi, everyone. My name is David. We haven't met and Jake invited me to share a little bit about my story. So I'm going to do that. On August 13, 2021, I packed up my things and moved a thousand miles away from home. Arizona State was the destination. Earning a master's degree at one of the best journalism schools in the country was the mission. But I left the Grand Canyon State with so much more. I found God, or maybe it would be more appropriate to say God found me in the most improbable of ways. In March of 2021, my mother was diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer. And four weeks before I departed for Arizona, my father suffered a heart attack. Originally, I kept my mother's diagnosis private from my classmates and professors. But on an October afternoon after class, a fellow student named Chad struck up a conversation with me. He noticed all the swooshes I was sporting and knowing I was from Oregon, asked me how far away I lived from the Nike World Headquarters. I told him, funny enough, decently close because my mom actually used to work there. He was joyfully surprised and then asked me where she works now. It was in those ensuing moments that our friendship was born. At the time, Chad and I didn't know each other very well at all, so it would have made much more sense to simply tell him she's retired or she doesn't work anywhere anymore. But for whatever reason, I opened up to him and quietly told him she's on long-term medical leave because she has terminal cancer. He then told me he lost his own father to cancer a couple years ago. It was at that moment I knew Chad and I would become more than classmates or colleagues. This connection birthed our friendship. I can now look back and say with certainty, certainty, this was God's work, even if I didn't know it at the time. At the time, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't grow up going to church, and I received no Bible-based education. While I didn't identify as an atheist or agnostic, I preferred the term unaffiliated, unattached, because I felt almost like a free agent without a team. However, it was Chad who would later bring me to Team Jesus. In the ensuing months, Chad and I spent lots of time together. We watched sports, shared many meals, and had many deep conversations. But one thing that didn't make sense to me at the time was why Chad never brought up Christianity or religion. I knew he was a devout follower of Christ. I could tell from the risk anywheres that reads WWJD or what would Jesus do? So it seemed really strange that he shied away from this topic, especially because we talked about practically everything else under the sun. But like the start of my friendship with Chad, it was also Chad who brought me to God in the most improbable of ways. So learn to never question God's timing. I was having a really bad day in the morning of April 30th, and Chad, being the great friend that he is, came over and wanted to walk with me to cheer me up. He asked how my mom was doing. I told him she was on a Disney cruise with some friends from church. He then asked her about, excuse me, he then asked about her church and then asked me if I go to church. I told him that I don't and that I wanted to, but I was afraid of judgment and embarrassment due to my lack of familiarity. We then sat outside, and he encouraged me to ask any faith-based questions I had and he answered all of them without judgment. 
I then started going to Redemption Tempe with Chad every Sunday, and I attended weekly Bible study with another classmate named Austin. However, after only a couple of months, I had to leave Redemption and move back to Portland upon completion of my program. A couple days after my 20-hour drive back home, I did some Googling, looking for a new church in Portland. However, it felt like the odds were stacked against me. Since Portland is statistically the least religious city in all of North America, finding a church here from a Google search felt more improbable than finding a wife on Tinder. (laughs) I then texted Chad and Austin and asked if they knew of any churches in Portland or if they had any connections here. Austin shot me a text later that night and told me he just got off the phone with a friend named Jake. He knew from Biola. Austin told me about Kainos and said Jake would love to get coffee with me. A couple days later, Jake and I met for the first time at Refuge Coffee. I was slightly nervous and had no idea what to expect. But I knew Austin had told me that Jake reminds him of Chad a lot. The bar was set extremely high. But Austin was absolutely right. Jake did remind me of Chad a lot. I knew from that point forward, I had found not only another Christian community, but another friend who would continue to lead me to Christ. Chad, Austin, Jake, Madison, and the entire Kindness community were alike to me. And now I want to be alike to other people, both in their walk with God and in their walk with cancer. While I've personally never had cancer, I know how it feels to see a family member suffer. I know how it feels to be a young person and see a parent suffer. My mom might not be around to see me get my dream job, and that weighs on me. Some mornings, I wake up nauseous because of the immense amount of pressure I'm under. More than anything, I want to make my mom proud. I don't know how much more time we have together, but with these heavy feelings, I'm able to show empathy to other people in my position. When another one of my classmates at ASU called me and told me her mom might have cancer, I jotted down all of her questions and called my mom and took detailed notes to give back to that classmate. Once the test came back and her mom was also diagnosed with cancer, I knew exactly how she felt. I remembered that Providence Park turned into a second home for me, and the only place where I was able to forget all of life's adversities. So I asked her what the equivalent of that was for her, and after she told me it was going to baseball games, Chad and I surprised her with tickets to the Diamondbacks Astros game. I'm happy to share that her mom is now cancer-free, but I know that I will come across many more people who I can help and be a light to. An Italian football manager named Gianluca Vialli, who has pancreatic cancer, said, quote, I am not a warrior. I am not fighting cancer. It's too strong an enemy. I would not stand a chance. I am a man who is on a journey, and cancer has joined me on that journey. My goal is to keep walking, keep moving, until he's had enough and leaves me alone, end quote. My goal is to be a light to others and walk with them on their journey with cancer. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's been so good. I think that is exactly what Jesus meant. I am the light of the world. And at a time in your life when everything felt chaotic and out of control, you found a light to help you navigate the dark things that you were going through. And then you've gotten to turn around to your classmates and to all of us and share the light that is within you. And I think what's profound is you said your friend, you know, you knew he really loved God, but he wasn't like forcing it on you. The thing about light is no one likes to have like a flashlight shown right into their eyes. Okay. And your friend, they didn't do that. They just, they took the light that they had, they put it there and they had meaningful conversations with you, right? Over meals and over sporting events and you spent time together. You got to know each other. And I think that that is what Jesus means when he says that we get to be the light of the world. 
in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, with our family, with our friends, we get to be light. And so as we finish our time together thinking about this Christmas story this evening, uh, we're going to pass around some electric candles, which are here in the back. And, um, and as we pass them around, uh, I think that sometimes it can be powerful to hold something that physically embodies like a concept or an idea. And um, we did not have the capacity to pass around literal candles. So you're just going to have to sort of pretend like you can feel the heat of that candle in your hand. Um, but I think that it's powerful at times to have a physical reminder of an emotional or spiritual symbol in our life. And as we think about the fact that Jesus said he is the light of the world, and then as he turns that towards us and says that we are the light of the world, I thought it would be great for us just to spend a moment reflecting on two questions together. Are there any ways that Jesus has been a light in your life over the past year? Maybe that was through reading a part of the Bible or through a time in prayer or just listening to a meaningful song. Maybe it was through a friend who came and comforted you when you were down. Maybe it was through community who celebrated with you when something beautiful happened like a wedding, the birth of a child. Maybe it's something too personal to share. Maybe it's something that you want to share with everyone. But are there any ways that Jesus has been a light in your life over the past year? And second... Are there any ways that you can be a light to others? Just like the shepherds experienced light and then shared it with others, are there any ways that you can share light with others? Just like the shepherds, just like Chad and Austin, just like David tonight. So we're going to sing a few more songs. And I encourage you just as we sing to reflect on these questions about how God has been a light into your life and how as we finish this year and go through the holidays, which can be stressful and a little hectic and chaotic. How can we be light to those around us as we finish this year and begin the next one? So invite our friends to come up and lead us in a few more songs.